So we're in Ezekiel, and we finished 21 last time, so we'll go to 22 tonight. 21 was the flashing sword, and what it talked about was the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar, and that Nebuchadnezzar was going to start up at the Euphrates River, and he was going to flip a coin and decide whether he was going to take Jerusalem first or Ammon first. But Lot fell to Jerusalem, and the prophecy in 21 talks about the flashing sword, and in the first place it consumes, obviously, is Jerusalem, and then, starting in verse 26, it turns to the Ammonites. So that's where we finished up. So onward to 22. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst, so that her time may come, and that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made. You have brought your days near, the appointed time of your years has come, therefore I have made you a reproach to the nation and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled, you are full of tumult. Obviously the thing that gets God to the point where he acts is bloodshed. The first thing he says is the bloody city where she sheds innocent blood. And then he talks about idolatry. And I think the reason for that is that is the reverse order of things. The thing that finally causes him to act is the bloodshed. But the bloodshed is brought on by idol worship. I was talking this afternoon on internet radio, and one of the things that happens with Israel is they want to be cosmopolitan. In other words, they want to be like everybody else. So what happens when they're put in the middle of Canaan, and they don't clear out all the natives, they wind up intermarrying, and they wind up doing business with these folks and everything else, And to use a messianic example, it's sort of like Christmas and Easter. You get a messianic that marries a Sunday Christian, and the Sunday Christian has grown up with Christmas, and it's a family tradition, and the grandparents all do Christmas, and what are we going to do with the kids because all the kids are going to do Christmas because the grandparents are going to show up with all sorts of presents, and What winds up happening is that Christmas then sort of creeps in, followed closely behind by Easter and Halloween, and pretty soon you have a syncretistic religion, which is a mixture, and one of the things that's going on with the group in Babylon that Ezekiel is talking to is they don't really understand why they're there. They are grumpy with God because God has abandoned them, quote-unquote, and left them to their enemies. But they still believe in God. We got all this other stuff. We got the Christmas and the Easter and the Halloween, but we still believe in God. And what's the big deal? 
So what Ezekiel is doing here is explaining to them in words of one syllable why they're there. And he's explaining it to a people who really doesn't get it. They don't see the harm in Christmas. They don't see the harm in Easter. They don't see the harm in Halloween. It's like back in the Torah, God told the king, don't take too many wives and don't take too many horses. In other words, don't become a militarist and don't become a, whatever you would call it, multiple marriage. And the reason for that is because your wives will bring with them the religion of their home. So Jezebel, when she comes down and marries Ahab, she is a worshiper of Baal. So she brings the priests of Baal with her and Ahab says, okay. And Solomon does the same thing. Solomon has a stable full of wives and concubines. So he winds up building them altars in high places so that all of his wives can worship the way they were brought up. And he loses focus and the country then splits after his death. All of that is because of a mixture of religion. So when God talks about idol worship, he is, of course, upset with the adulterous aspect of it. You are my betrothed. I espoused you to me. What are you doing messing around with other guys? So there's that aspect to it. But that isn't what causes him to finally say, all right, everybody out of the pool, I'm going to sand the place down flat. It's all the stuff that goes with the idol worship that leads to violence and bloodshed and all that kind of stuff. So what he's talking about here is he says, first, a city that sheds blood in their midst. That's the thing that causes him to act. But the reason for that is you have become defiled by your idols. And that's what has led you down this path that has led you to where you are now. And furthermore, you guys are so bad that the nations around you are disgusted by you. The pagan nations around them look good in comparison to Israel because they are pagans and they do worship idols, but they have one and they are consistent with it, whereas Israel is not. She has her God, she has their God, she has gods from across the river. There's no consistency with her whatsoever. So what God is saying is, you're a stench in my nostrils, you're a stench in everybody else's nostrils, and I want to make sure that everybody sees and understands that I'm not a patsy, so I'm going to take you out. So down to verse 6. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged by you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual purity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife, and another defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you defiles his sister, his father's daughter, 
and you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. You've got two things going on here. One is you've got the result of pagan worship, which leads to child sacrifice and human sacrifice and all of that kind of stuff. But the other thing you have is disregard of the Torah. And you know, all of these things that he lists from verse 8 to verse 13 is Torah 101. And the big thing is as they get away from God, the only thing that they worship is material stuff. So they do whatever they think they can get away with. And the society itself has become so corrupt that everybody does it. It isn't just your random bad guys. It's the government that's doing it. And quite frankly, I was talking this afternoon, and one of the things we're talking about is the fact that we haven't had a prophet in 2,000 years. And I think I got this from Ron Dart. It's not original with me. But the idea is human nature doesn't change. So God, rather than sending you a new prophet, turns and says, read the book. You're doing the same stuff. And if I was disgusted with them for doing that, what makes you think I like having you do it? So what we have in our country today is the government has become completely corrupt. We were talking about this vaccination. So there are all sorts of conspiracy theories all over the Internet about what's really going on with this vaccine. And I don't know. I'm not proponing my own conspiracy theory. I don't know. But the whole thing can, in fact, be reasonably explained by good old-fashioned corruption. Pfizer has paid bribes to various governments to get them to mandate this vaccine, and Pfizer's making a boatload of money. Simple human corruption. Now, Maybe something entirely different, but that's a component of it. I don't claim any special knowledge other than I have seen how governments work. And the government in Israel, as being described here by the prophet, you need to take things and update them to our modern methods of crime, and you get the same thing. For example, you take profit. Well, profit in our society is not a dirty word. And profit, as it is described in our society, is not a dirty word biblically either. What they're talking about here when they take profit is they make a loan at interest or they make what's called a discounted loan, which is to say, Mike needs to borrow some money. So I say to Mike, all right, the loan is for $1,000 and I'll give you 900 so when the loan comes due, you owe me 1000 even though I only shelled out 900 That's profit in the biblical sense here that God is grumpy with. Because the Torah specifically forbids making money off of lending money to a fellow Israelite. It does not forbid it to a Gentile. So you can go into the banking business, move up to Lebanon, and open your banking business and charge interest and do all that kind of stuff, and that's fine. But you can't do it within Israel. The sojourner suffering extortion in verse 7. I watched a very delightful movie 
two nights ago. I love old movies. This movie that I watched called A Stranger in Town, the premise was this Supreme Court Justice, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, is taking a vacation, and he's going somewhere to go duck hunting. So he goes to this little town somewhere, little, where the little town is is not specified, and the first thing that happens is the game warden shakes him down. So the game warden comes up and says, let me see your license, and he pulls out his license, I just bought it this morning. And he says, oh, but you don't have a town stamp. But I'll sell you one right here for five bucks. Okay, so he gets out his five bucks, and the guy says, uh, and by the way, people usually give me a little something for the convenience. And the judge says, I only pay off once. Let's go to the court. And he gets fined 100 bucks at the court. So the court, the mayor, the car dealer, all of these people are in cahoots. They are running the town for profit, their profit. Not, not real profit, but you, know, you have extortion and you have all sorts of stuff going on. And in the movie, this young idealistic lawyer is running for mayor to try and clean up the town and the Supreme Court justice, without letting him know what he is, gives him some pointers and by the end of it, they gotten rid of the corruptocrats. This is a charming and delightful movie. What we're talking about here is this guy is a sojourner. And he walks into town, does what he thinks is necessary to go hunt ducks, and then discovers, oh, well, <laughs> you know, that may be what you thought was necessary, but really, you need to do all this to hunt ducks in our place. So what you've got is a corrupt government shaking everybody down. And the judge in the town is part of this cabal. So some guy comes in and says, I missed a payment on my plow. And the guy wants to repossess it. Judge says, fine, let him take your plow, which shuts his farm down. So whole place is run corruptly for the benefit of the local government. And it is say, this is a small town, this is not a nation. But what you're reading here in Ezekiel is that kind of an atmosphere where everybody is using the government or the church to profit himself unjustly at someone else's expense. That's what is being talked about. And as I say, you can pop this up to today and come up with half a dozen examples without even breathing hard. So, as I say, God doesn't need to send us any more prophets. He's already told us what he doesn't like. This is talking about Jerusalem here. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He is prophesying to the people in Babylon. They don't fully comprehend why they're there. The next thing that's going to happen is Jerusalem is going to be sanded flat by Nebuchadnezzar. So what he's telling the people in Babylon is this is why that city is going to be sanded flat. It's going to happen soon and don't come looking to God and wait a minute, you took us into exile and you destroyed Jerusalem. What's wrong here? He's explaining that to them. Verse 13. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure or your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. 
I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries. I will consume your uncleanness out of you. You shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Several things here. One of the things that's going on in Jerusalem, and again, he's not prophesying to Jerusalem, he's prophesying about Jerusalem. But one of the things that's going on is in Nebuchadnezzar's first trip to Israel, he put Jerusalem and Judah under tribute, and he made them take an oath. False prophets in Jerusalem have convinced the leadership that God is on their side and they should throw off the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and get these Babylonians out of the country. So that's what's going on in Jerusalem. So when he says in verse 14, can your courage endure or can your hands be strong in the days I shall deal with you? So what the false prophets are telling Jerusalem is we got the temple of the Lord, we got really strong walls, we got enough food to last us however long we need. This guy cannot take us. So what God is saying here is you may think that you're strong enough to withstand the Babylonians for however long it takes. But you're not up against the Babylonians. You're up against me. And you are not strong enough to withstand me. God is not surprised. God is not fooled. God is not mocked. God knows exactly what's going on. And at some point, it finally gets right up to here. Can't stand the smell anymore. And that's when he whistles up the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans and comes in and deals with stuff. And I quite frankly, believe that he may right now be in the process of dealing with us. That may be what all this stuff that we're experiencing is, is the beginning of God dealing with us. Because you'll notice one of the things that's happened to us in the world is we have been taken down about three pegs ever since Biden was elected. We got chased out of Afghanistan. China is moving all over the world. Now, China is not in any better shape. They just happen to be a step ahead of us right now. But there's a big real estate investment trust in China. One of the things China does, they've got millions of people that they need to keep employed. So they have built cities with nobody in them. They go out and they plop down a brand new modern city and nobody ever lives there because they want to keep the construction workers employed. Well, there's a real estate conglomerate that is financing all of this with debt and so forth, and it looks like they are going to collapse. They can't make the interest payment on their debt. So what China is cruising for right now is a Lehman Brothers meltdown. Remember when Lehman Brothers melted down in 2008 and the whole economy shuddered like a bowl full of jello? Well, that appears to be on the very near horizon for China. And of course, nations all over the world have invested in this Chinese real estate venture, firm, whatever you call it. You know, they sell bonds and all that kind of stuff, and they can't make the interest payment on their bonds. So they're about to go belly up, 
and you got a whole bunch of people that have invested in them who are going to be whacked in that process. So one of the things that seems to be going on right now is God is whacking the world like a bowl full of jello, and everything is being shaken. But if you read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, any of the prophets, what you see is the stuff that God finally has had enough of is exactly the stuff we're doing. So it is unlikely that he will look upon us with smiling favor, whereas he did not look upon his own people that way. All right, so down to verse 17. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. You probably all know this, but when you melt metal, A, it's got impurities in it. So several things happen. One is as you heat it, the impurities, if they don't melt, will rise to the surface. And the other thing that will happen is as you melt the metal, the molten metal will oxidize. It'll rust or whatever the term is for that particular rust is iron. But and the scum that floats on the top, which is oxidized metal and impurities, is called dross. And that is typically skimmed off and thrown away. And then the pure metal that's left in the crucible is poured out in, into molds or ingots or whatever you're going to do with it. And so the idea of Israel becoming as dross means that for God's purposes, they are worthless. They have no value. They are something that is to be discarded as a waste byproduct of metal smelting. They are a waste byproduct of the valuable metal that is to be produced. Verse 19, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze, iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger, in my wrath. I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath. You shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. So the idea is everybody is being gathered into Jerusalem. Remember we just said earlier, the idea is they think Jerusalem is impregnable. So everybody being gathered into Jerusalem will initially seem like a measure of safety. But what's really happening is you have just been put into a furnace. And I will blow my heat on that furnace and I will melt you as opposed to you being able to survive this siege. You're going to think you're coming into a place of safety. But I'm telling you, you're going into a furnace. And I'm going to burn the impurities out of you. And as I say, the word going around among the elites in Jerusalem is, we are impregnable. There's no way that this Babylonian king is going to be able to take us down. We'll just pull inside the city, close the gates, 
and we'll wait him out. That's the idea. And what God says is the thing that you think is going to bring you safety is in fact simply getting you all together in one place in the furnace so I can melt you. Verse 23. Here, I do not understand this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her. I don't know who her is because this entire prophecy has been about Jerusalem. He is not in Jerusalem. He is not speaking to Jerusalem. He's in Babylon speaking to exiles. So I'm not sure what the pronoun there means. Obviously, in the sense of it, since we're talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, her would be Jerusalem. But as I say, he is not in Jerusalem. He's not there to speak. He's not there to prophesy. That's Jeremiah's job. Jeremiah, at the same time, is prophesying and, in fact, getting himself beat up for his prophecies. So anyway, back to 23. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in their midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the clean and unclean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths. So I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing at the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash on them, seeing false vision and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. Let's, let's stop there. There's, that's a whole bunch of stuff there. The first part of this, he is obviously talking to Jerusalem. You have a conspiracy of prophets in her midst, which is to say false prophets. So Jeremiah prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, and the deputy chief priest arrests him, has him beaten, has him put in the stocks, and the commentary is that the Deputy chief priest and all the prophets were prophesying that everything's going to be fine. So if you have this guy Jeremiah prophesying, no, nothing's going to be fine, what could wind up happening, it would be like the sin of the spies. Remember when the spies came back with a bad report? So you have this guy Jeremiah that's giving a bad report when all of the establishment prophets, quote unquote, are prophesying that everything's going to be okay. So you don't want this guy Jeremiah prophesying doom and gloom because what you'll do is demoralize everybody in the city. And you'll reduce their fighting spirit and they won't have the gumption to hang in there and all that kind of stuff. And so they may cause the city to fall because of failure of morale. So one of the commentaries was saying that that's the reason that Jeremiah got roughed up and thrown in the stocks. That may be entirely true. It's also the case, as we've talked about before, that a prophet in Israel is an agent. He is not simply a mouthpiece for God. So one of the things that 
leaders do to prophets in Israel is they rough them up to get them to shut up because they are never sure whether it's the prophet that's speaking for himself or the prophet speaking for God. So in the case of Moses, for example, in Korah's rebellion, when Moses said, all right, the ground doesn't open up and swallow these guys, I'm not your man. And then God the next day told him to sit down, you're killing too many of my people. So the relationship between Israel's government and prophets has always been fraught because A, a prophet will go in and talk directly to the king in in words of one syllable, and that's annoying enough, but you're never sure whether he's speaking as a mouthpiece for God or whether he's like Elijah whistling up a bear for some snotty teenagers. But the point is here that Jeremiah prophesied against this cabal of prophets in Jerusalem and got roughed up in the process. So we have a conspiracy of prophets in verse 25. And these are false prophets. And what they are is like roaring lions because their prophecies are lies. What they're doing is leading people astray to their destruction. Conspiracy for prophets in their midst is like roaring lions tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. In other words, they are prophesying for profit. They get paid. And by the way, you all remember the coronation of Saul. He's out looking for his father's donkeys. So he and his companion are searching for the donkeys, and they come to this town, and the companion says, I think there's a prophet here in this town. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. And Saul says, I don't remember the exact dialogue, but we got any money to buy a prophecy from this guy? So the idea of giving a prophet a tip or a bribe or whatever you want to call it, and these guys are making a living off of it. The next thing is in 26 is they're priests. have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They make no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught their difference between the clean and unclean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So the priests have fallen down on their job. Priests has got three jobs. Separate from clean and unclean. Holy and common. In other words, things that belong to God and things that are common. And then to teach Torah which is where the Sabbaths come in. And one of the things that's happened was I was talking earlier about syncretism, where other religions seep into the true religion. It's the priest's job to stop that. That's what they're supposed to do. So when people start stringing Christmas lights, the priests should go out there and say, whoa, that has nothing to do with the worship of Jehovah, let's get them out of town. But they're not. They're going along with it. So the priests are a major problem in that they're not being true to the word of God. And then, down in verse 27, this is corrupt secular government. Now, this is your game warden that shows up and says, oh, you don't have a duck stamp. Well, I'll sell you a duck stamp for the cost of the stamp plus a carrying charge. 
that's what we're talking about here, is government has used its position in government to enrich itself. Her princes in the midst of her are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives for to get dishonest gain. That's what I just said, 28. And her prophets are smearing whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. So what you have is this cabal of corrupt prophets who, when the government is doing stuff that's not right, these prophets are saying, yea and amen, and they're saying that these government officials are not corrupt, but they are, and that's what the smearing of whitewash is. They are whitewashing these corrupt government actions so that people can't look at them and say, whoa, wait a minute, that isn't right. Now, the other thing to understand, the priests were specialists. They had the Torah. Common people didn't have their own copy of the Torah. So the common people depended on what they were taught by the priests. And the priests are the ones that had the written book. So when a priest or a prophet said, oh yes, this is fine, it becomes then, if you will, the rabbinic ruling, and this is okay. That's what oral Torah is, where people have gone over the years to rabbis and say, well, what about this? And a rabbi has made a ruling and it's been written down. And one of the things that Yeshua does when he is acting as a prophet during his first trip to earth is he's saying to them, you guys buy your traditions of men, oral Torah, have made Moses to no effect. In other words, over the years, these rulings have accumulated, and one will push things a little bit, another will push a little farther, a little farther, and pretty soon, the rabbinic rulings don't look anything like what Moses would say. That's what's going on here. They've lost focus on the Word of God because they have their traditions which have been interpreted by priests who have not stayed true to the Torah. So that's what whitewashing them is talking about. So thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. 29. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy. They have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So what God is saying here is this is measure for measure. Just exactly as they have done, it will be done to them. And this idea of finding a man who will stand in the gap, that should take you back to the discussion that Abraham is having with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. God does lunch with Abraham and then sends his two angels on ahead to check on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham stands in the gap for Sodom and Gomorrah and says, surely you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Well, I guess not. And we negotiate down until he finally gets to the point of, well, if I can find ten righteous men, I'll spare the place. 
Here, God can't even find one. So that should be the thing in the back of your mind as you read through that. And earlier in the book of Ezekiel, you remember God had said that if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the town, they would only be able to spare themselves. In other words, the place is so bad that those three righteous men, I would just get them out of the way and take the town down. They wouldn't be able to cause me to spare the city. So this has gotten to the point where God can't stand the stench anymore. And he's letting everybody know what's going to happen and why it's going to happen and that it's all measure for measure. Oh, yeah. 